So welcome everyone uh, to this EPP group talk here in the European Parliament on the war in Ukraine. What is next on a situation that is uh, sometimes changing by the day, by the hour, uh, but that we're going to try to get a, a handle on this uh, with uh, Mikhail Gallo, uh, the EPP group spokesman on uh, foreign affairs and the European Parliament standing rapporteur on Ukraine. Welcome, Mikhail. And Andrus Kubilius, uh, the EPP group spokesman on Russia, uh, chair of the Euronest Parliamentary Assembly that includes Ukraine. Uh, and uh, you're on the committees on foreign affairs and, uh, and others as well. Also, ex-Prime Minister of Lithuania. Welcome. Pleasure. We have talked about this a few times. Uh, and now, at this point, uh, we, this, we're, this is after the annexation, um, the Russia's annexation of those four territories within Ukraine. Uh, and things are moving pretty fast on the battlefield. Um, shall we start with Andrus? What is the next step after this annexation? What should the EU be doing in terms of, not only in terms of supporting Ukraine, but in terms of sanctions? What do we do at this point? What's next? Well, first of all, of course, it's very clear that all those referendums, it was, you know, totally illegal and there is nothing to add, you know? And the consequences of so-called referenda, which is a shame, shame referendum, you know, also, uh, you know, null and void from the very beginning. Uh, the question is why Putin is playing those games, you know. It's more to Putin for domestic, you know, audience. But uh, I think that, yeah, reaction from our side should be very, very strong. Uh, new sanctions, okay. you know. And I would add, you know, that uh, since uh, we have, you know, eight uh, package of sanctions, so really it's... It, it becomes quite difficult to find something, you know, yeah. really painful. What, what more should we be doing? <laughs> yeah. at this point? So my yeah. my thought is that as a sanction, we should consider as not only as a sanction, but also as a as some some kind of, you know, international justicing, really to start to push for international special, you know, tribunal for aggression crimes, which would tar be targeted towards directly towards, you know, Putin. Mm. That would be one of as I would consider like a next sanction. Last point is really, I think, I am not a lawyer, you know, and now I am consulting with, with international lawyers in Lithuania, because when Putin is doing such, you know, stupid things like announcing that, you know, they are next, you know, new territories. So it means that they abandoned uh, their old, you know, old borders. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, of course, from our side, annexation is total, you know, uh, uh, there is no, no meaning in that. But if you will look into United Nations, you know, charter and membership charter, how it describes who can become member of, of, of United Nations, among four criteria is one, defined territory. The country needs to have defined territory. So what is now Russian territory? No. Well, now they're not so sure, right? About <laughs> so that, about that's, but I, I'm not saying that we need to know immediately to decide on that, but I'm yeah. saying that really, for me, it's interesting to talk with international lawyers how they should look into that. Uh, Mikhail, your initial reaction there to the annexations uh, over the weekend, uh, what should our next step be? How much more sanctions should we be imposing at this well, point? Well, actually, uh, I, I think it's also about uh, seeing to it that the implementation of the existing one goes ahead. Mm. So, for instance, it would be very tough that spare parts, technical materials for industry, for the aircrafts, 
that that is actually not being exported, also not via any bypasses that uh, might uh, then end up in Russia, but that we really have to be very strong about that because then, I mean, we see already good results. Uh, and, uh, 75 percent of the of the car production has dropped last year uh, when we see that more and more planes, all those from Airbus and, and Boeing, of course, uh, Western products, that they will have to remain on the ground because the spare parts and all these things are missing. And I, for instance, on, on the aspect of personal sanctions, I would simply scan all the participants in the big Kremlin hall uh, and check uh, their faces, whether they are already on our list of sanctions. And if not, they should be added. Those who were present at this uh, Heroes Square speech that he uh, did there uh, in order to announce the return of certain uh, territories, Heimensreich, as the Germans would say, mm. uh, that all those people present there bear their responsibility that goes ahead. Let's sanction them all. But what about on, on the banking side? Uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky yes. was saying, pull the plug entirely on the SWIFT system uh, link uh, with uh, Russian banks. What Indeed. Are we and shooting ourselves in the foot if we do that? Well, I think we have already, I think three quarters are already covered, including spare bank. But indeed, there are those that are still running. And uh, as we are not getting any gas de facto anymore, and mm. as the uh, sanctions on oil are getting in effect in, in two months time, uh, I think we, we should already now prepare to, to do that uh, in the immediate uh, future in order to really cut them off uh, the financial flows. But on the sanctions side too, there is a reluctance within the EU. Not all of the EU member countries are on board. Uh, Hungary, for one, uh, is, is a bit reluctant on certain sanctions. How do we overcome that? How do we try to impose further sanctions without getting to a breaking point where some of the member countries say no? Well, definitely, you know, uh, we know that problem. Uh, you know, there is nothing new. There are always, you know, quite hot discussions among, you know, member states, which sanctions should be, you know, implemented, introduced, and how, how to implement them. I would, uh, from that point of view, I would praise, nevertheless, you know, EU that we managed to adopt, you know, seven packages. Okay. Uh, second point is really, uh, you know, we are facing really a huge geopolitical crisis on the European continent. You know, this Russian war against Ukraine, it touches everybody. And EU needs to look into, into this as one additional crisis, which usually pushes EU to, you know, become stronger in, in, you know, after the crisis to become stronger, you know, to change something inside mm. of, it, of, 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 of its own, you know, operations like it was during pandemic, like it was during financial crisis. Now it's time for us really to review how we are making decisions on foreign and security policy. And Which that is, means weighted majority voting. Yeah, let's, let's go for qualified majority voting, yeah. you know, because those, you know, veto rights when some country suddenly stops all other countries, very important decision to punish an aggressor, that is not the way how you should, you know, go, 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 go along, you know, during such, such really very, 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 you know, deep crisis. And that's what we need to do. So that is why convention is needed. That is why we need to really to talk very seriously how to make our foreign and security policy decision making much more effective. Can I come back to uh, that? That is a very important thing that we're going to be talking about that through the future of Europe, uh, talk of your reforms and so forth. I want to come back to on one thing on sanctions is there's talk about more shipping sanctions and that there are some holdouts uh, with, with Greece, Malta, and Cyprus being big shippers, 
How do we overcome their resistance to try to impose more shipping sanctions against the Russians? The Indeed, Dutch? it is about those uh, the, those amounts of oil that are transported elsewhere from yeah. Russia to third countries. I mean, into the EU it's blocked, but not to third countries. I raised this issue uh, during our group meeting in, in Crete uh, with the mm. Prime Minister and, well, uh, he... Uh, um, the result was that they would probably continue. My suggestion would be, I mean, we are spending so much on sanctions and, and, and helping uh, concerned member states. I would be in favor to really uh, compensate Greek, Cypriot, Maltese shipping companies for the profit that they are not getting. Ah, so, okay. so, and thereby, but then they have to, to keep their ships at home. Mm -hmm. And the Russians cannot, or the world market cannot substitute that. You know, right. the, 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 the amount of uh, uh, tons that can be shipped is limited. And if there is a considerable amount missing, that is not for the Russians also to ask the Chinese or whoever mm -hmm. uh, to, to go in this direction. And the Japanese or the South Koreans, they are on our side. So I, uh, I would definitely uh, like to have a discussion that we could compensate our companies for the profits that they are not getting uh, and we can take reference uh, uh, profits that they had mm -hmm. uh, the year before the sanctions and so on right. and thereby guarantee that really uh, Russian oil is not transported, at least not with ours. Right, right. Because that can have a, a very serious impact yeah. on uh, tightening the noose. Um, you could, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, Andrews, uh, how much should we be supporting it further. We're already sending, the West is sending tanks, they're sending all kinds of weapons, they're kind of, uh, lots of things. How much, what more should we be doing to support that? Well, uh, I would say, first of all, counteroffensive is very effective and very successful. Till now, you know, at least we are watching. And each, you're knocking on wood. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> each, each hour we are watching, you know, new maps and, and really it's amazing how much, you know, uh, uh, Ukrainian militaries can achieve. Now it's, you know, uh, the progress in, in, in Kherson region. Before that, it was Kharkiv, then Liman. Now it's Kherson region. And, and really, it's, it's very clear that, you know, with uh, Western assistance, uh, with US, uh, Britain and, and EU assistance, Ukrainians can achieve a lot. I would say that, you know, yeah, they are showing that, you know, with such kind of, you know, military equipment which they are getting, and we're learning very, very rapidly, you know, how to how to use that. I would say that they are showing that they are even above, you know, NATO standards. I would say mm -hmm. in such a way, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, second point is really that if it depends very much on our, you know, strategy. Really, if we want the war to end as soon as possible, we need to deliver weapons. That is the only, you know, condition how the war can end in a very right. quick way. So keep it up. Keep it up, you know, increase and, 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 and you know, and to achieve uh, full victory of Ukraine, which means that all the, you know, Russian armies should be, you know, defeated and, 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 and you know, and pushed, pushed out from, from Ukrainian territory. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of war game speculation by, uh, on talk shows with former generals about the nuclear option. Um, Mikhail, would you like to comment on that? Well, the, 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 the fear that, that uh, President Putin with his back to the wall might actually use tactical weapons. Before I come to that, I would support especially all deliveries uh, uh, that are available 
from, from my own country, Germany, the martyrs that are standing on the yard of a, of a company waiting to get the permission to go. Mm. And also there's a European, there's a leopard initiative tanks. To, to tanks, to have the fighter tanks. There are 13 countries who have got leopards, more than 2,000 altogether. Let's take 200 mm. and uh, deliver it jointly so that it's not a standalone thing from any country. Right. And so on that, on the nucleus, I'm pretty sure uh, there's no question about using the strategic potential of nuclear weapons. And then comes the question to, to the tactical weapons. Uh, I'm pretty sure it will at the end not be used. Not only because it would, well, uh, reveal uh, obviously the uh, uh, the Russian weakness and uh, the admittance that they have lost or on the, are on the way to lose. Second, it would not uh, impact on the on the uh, decisiveness of the uh, uh, of the Ukrainians to go on fighting. Mm -hmm. And third, and I think that is the most important thing. I think the Russians got very clear message from the U.S. that any use of tactical weapons would result in a massive conventional mm. response on Russian troops in Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, I think that is uh, a deterrent that is quite effective. Also quite an admission, I think, that it's no longer a special military operation, as uh, Mr. Putin was insisting. What about, what about um, sabotage? And this talk about the, the, the pipelines uh, under the, uh, North, uh, the uh, North Sea being sabotaged. Um, there's a lot of speculation there. And even speculation I heard uh, just just today on a, a talk show about uh, the possibility of sabotaging uh, offshore wind power, wind turbines. How much are you worried about that, Abdus? Well, uh, no, we are you know absolutely clear that we are you know uh, worried and concerned, and we see you know all the reports from other you know countries like Norway, like you know some some other Nordic countries which are. Producing gas, you know, and delivering through the pipelines, you know, to Europe, that they are worried about security of the pipelines, uh, and and it's very clear that you know Putin is uh, waging two wars at the same time. One is against Ukraine, another is against you know European Union. What mm. I call Putin's winter war, you know, mm. trying to you know freeze Europe without gas and so on. So we don't know really what's what what was the purpose of that you know sabotage of Nord Stream two, and we still don't know definitively yeah, we don't who know, did it. No, but right. my 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 guess is that really you know Kremlin is behind that. The question is what were the purposes? Either to you know scare up scare you know Europeans and to and to see how you know this you know sabotage against Nord Stream two, how it's raising the prices of gas. I still do not see any. Any data about that? Oh yeah. But you know, but uh, as it was very clear, you know, the Nordic countries which are delivering gas, you know, became quite nervous about security of their pipelines because still now it was considered quite secure and nobody was really, you know, investing into some kind of uh, special, you know, special security arrangements. The last point, which I hear from Russian, you know, democratic, you know, opposition experts. They're saying that it can be a very simple operation of uh, Gazprom, which sounds for me quite, uh, I don't know, you know I'm, I'm not, not taking it for, 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 you know, for granted, yeah. that Gazprom, which was pushed by, you know, by Kremlin, not to deliver on, on, on its contracts, you know, not to deliver gas as, mm -hmm. as it was you know, written in the contracts to, to Germany, to other countries, they know that they can be sued to you know international arbitration on very big amounts of you know billions of 
of euros, you know. Okay. And that is why they decided to create some kind of this, you know, uh, story in order to explain that, look, you know, we are not guilty. <laughs> it so happened, you know. And, and Russians have very simple technology, I mean, to do it because uh, special robots are used usually inside of the pipe to, to look after, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, pro, uh, are, they, are they good in, in their, you know, maintenance and to, and to, you know, to, to connect to that, you know, robot, some kind of explosion material is very easy. Yeah, there's also uh, a, a, an existing pipeline between what Norway and uh, Poland, I think, right? Is that right? Norway, Denmark, Poland. Denmark, yes. Poland. How, how worried are you? About that, and the, these think, other pipelines that were uh, damaged were, were linking with Germany, with Kaiswald in Germany, right? So. I mean, uh, I think it was obviously not a coincidence that on the day when this new one was inaugurated, these things happened. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it was a very clear signal. And for me, it's also, I mean, uh, this discussion, who was it? I mean, there are people in the West who have a desperate tendency to, to, to find arguments around Russia <laughs> for, for, for whatever reason, uh, be it anti-Americanism or what, or what else, mm. to, to, to think of the most far-fetched uh, argument that it was not the Russians. But I think uh, it reminds me a bit of the discussion, who are these green men in Crimea? Uh, we had some weeks where reasonable people <laughs> argued, well, who could that vacation. have been? They were, yeah, they were on vacation. vacation. <laughs> so, so I think let's first assume the, 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 the most probable um, uh, culprit. And then uh, unless uh, there are opposite signals, mm. uh, then, then I'm happy to, to take another position. Yeah, is, is it at all possible to secure these pipelines? How do you do that? It's impossible. Well, it? I think there is uh, at least uh, satellite pictures and, 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 and also there are sonar uh, uh, installations all around so that we can see or that we can hear when there is a submarine somewhere mm. uh, and, and, and something. So that is it's such possible uh, in principle. But of course, there are also even in the Baltic Sea, there are quite some distances. So you cannot be omnipresent. And uh, yeah. uh, but um, uh, let's let's be vigilant and let's attentive. Vigilant. That's what we can do. And now, what about uh, this? The Putin's mobilization and his calling up of hundreds of thousands of, uh, of of Russians to serve, and many of them are heading for the exits. Um, and just just in mind that that uh, that you, Andres, you were uh, part of a, a pro democracy, pro independence group. Uh, in Lithuania, way back when, uh, you you you, uh, you you saw that uh, potential for uh, opposition. Um, what do you sense that's going on in Russia now? And should we be allowing the the uh, these young Russian men to to come to Europe? Well, first of all, of course, uh, the whole mobilization, you know, uh, story shows one thing: that uh, Putin is in a very deep, you know, desperation. I mean, he is losing on a military field. It's very clear, you know, you know, that Ukrainians, especially with the Western, you know, weapons, they are much above, you know, capacities of Russian militaries. Uh, you know, and that's why, you know, Putin, uh, who put so much of his prestige into this, you know, mm -hmm. war, so he, he declared uh, mobilization, which again, you know, showed what is, you know, unreadiness of Russian, you know, all the institutional structures uh, to do the job. Uh, now, definitely, you know, uh, 
this is now again very big challenge for Putin's regime. So it's backfiring on yeah, him. backfiring mm -hmm. because as as some Russian opposition people are saying, this is the first time when in each you know family, people started to understand that the war is going on. Yeah, no, Which because everybody still... has you know somebody around yeah. in 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 in. In the neighborhood, in the family, who now is under danger, and and that can be really, you know, at the end it can it can destroy totally Putin's so regime. So further hundreds of thousands. You know, yeah. now I saw the last number in Kazakhstan, yeah. three hundred thousand. In Kazakhstan alone. In Kazakhstan alone. Wow. Mm. You know, at least Kazakhstan, you know, government is announcing on Georgian border. You know, thousands. many of people. Yeah. Now our our real position is, you know. Uh, I think that we shall have uh, this uh, week. We shall have debate and and resolution. Maybe here will be some language on, on exactly on those you know who are who are running away. Okay. Uh, especially those who will run or is are starting to run from real service, real military service. As I understand, you know, legislation on uh, on refugees, European legislation. Mm -hmm. They have the right to apply for you know refugee status. So should they have the right? That is even now. As yeah. a, I don't know so precisely, but that's what we are, what, what, because what some, at least we are discussing. Because what, some countries are closing yeah. their borders. Yeah. Right? The problem is with security. Yeah. When those, you know, hundreds of thousands are reaching European, you know, territory, we don't know who are they, you know. We know about opposition people. We know about, you know, those who really were fighting. Now we do not know, you know. Okay. Some of them can be even sent by Kremlin. So that is why. Some kind of special arrangements on, you know, on on checking, on on vetting, you know, those who are coming into mm -hmm. into Europe will be very much needed. So that's what we need to take into account. Okay, um, Mikhail, um, yeah, what is your position on that? Should we be leaving the borders open for them, or should we start to vet? Well, uh, it is indeed uh, a difficult decision. Uh, uh, from, I mean, there are the arguments uh, to say, well. They didn't care about the war uh, when they were not concerned. And now, uh, as they are concerned, they suddenly uh, discover their uh, status of being prosecuted or, or being uh, uh, taken to the army and they don't want to follow that. That is the political or emotional side. On the legal side, um, I'm, uh, I think there is a, a, a line to say, is somebody... Um, applies for asylum arguing he doesn't want to follow the call to be part of a illegal war but if he returns home he will be confronted with an unfair uh, trial mm. and that might at least in my country in germany become a reason an argument to grant asylum or at least to tolerate him and not to push him back to Russia. Right. So uh, that is the, the legal side. What is a, a problem, of course, if it were, I'm not so sure because it's easier to go apparently to Kazakhstan or to Georgia, uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's a bit of a moral problem to, if, if we had hundreds of thousands of Russian men uh, uh, in our countries, side by side with Ukrainian women and children mm. who, who, who fled the very country where these guys are coming from and did not resist, uh, uh this, this war. Uh, so that is the moral uh, aspect uh, in this regard as well. But on an individual base, uh, and I think when somebody appears and claims asylum, regardless his background, that has to be checked. That is a European yeah. law. Well, there's, but there's, there's a debate going on, I think, between how much we should be isolating Russia, how much should we be preventing people from, from leaving Russia, 
Uh, and you know, we're, we're in a new Cold War now. How do we treat Russia now in terms of its people? How much do we isolate them? I would, I would say there is a much broader you know, issue. Yeah. Uh, and here is what I call division you know, in Europe, which is, you, can, you can see you know, among believers in possibility of Russia to become a democracy and non-believers, yeah. which is pretty natural. When you see Bucha, Irpen, you know, uh, Izum, yeah, the, the, and all those crimes, the atrocities, you know, yeah. to, to believe that Russia can so easily become a democracy would be quite naive. But nevertheless, I'm on that side of believers, you know, okay. that really our goal should be to have a strategy, at least to try to attempt to assist Russia, you know, which will lose this war, I am pretty sure. And maybe, you know, Putin will be forced to, you know, to go out in one or another way to try to, you know, to assist Russia to change itself, to transform itself into democracy. Because that would be the major change you know, of whatever, security, architecture on the European continent, and so on yeah. and so on. So I am not so sure that, you know, we shall succeed. Yeah. Or, you know, Russians, that they will succeed with our assistance. But nevertheless, not to try would be a big mistake. And if we are taking such an approach, then we can look each of our steps now. Okay. What we are doing with, you know, with those who are fleeing, you know, Russia. What we are doing, you know, with our, with our some kind of language towards Russia. Mm. No, of course... This war is, is bringing a lot of very emotional, you know, positions right. into our communities. And, and that is very difficult, you know, then to, you know, to, 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 to find and to speak more rational language. Yeah. That is pretty natural. But, you know, as, as politicians, we need to see a little bit broader. We have to look beyond that. It's, yeah. not, it's not only what next, it's, it's, it's what comes after. And uh, in that context, I'd like to, in a final thought, rewind back to the 1980s. Glasnost, Gorbachev, yeah. and you were a young uh, person before you became a, uh, a diplomat, a German diplomat during the Cold War and after the Cold War. Mm. You saw the potential there yes. when your, your youth group met with Russian diplomats, right? Yes, Tell us indeed. A quickly about I that. mean, it was uh, after Gorbachev had started and it uh, looked as if it was something new and something exciting. At some point, we dared to invite uh, Russian diplomats from the embassy at the time in Bonn to, to explain us what it's all about, Glasnost and Perestroika. Mm -hmm. And they actually came. We were surprised that they came to a district of the youth organization of the CDU, the Junge Union, and they were there. And it was, uh, you could see they were young diplomats and you could see also the, their own hope that it would, I mean, they are intelligent people. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you can get rid of certain stereotypes of uh, party phraseology that you can get rid of and open up, it's a good feeling for everyone. And uh, so that was uh, the point. And, and, and I say, uh, coming out of the Cold War then and coming out of what Russia is committing now, I mean, it resembles in many respects to what the Germans did in Ukraine during the war of atrocities. So look at us. We, we were able to, to become different. Mm. And hope dies last. And I would say at some point when the Russians recognize that they are Europeans and not Chinese-dependent uh, 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 people, uh, th th when they find out that they can gain and win much more if they honestly and genuinely and democratically engage with us, it's far better for them than if they seek uh, a long-term relationship which is not on an equal footing with China, but yeah. that uh, of a followship, uh, not of a leadership. 
uh, with China, then there is a chance, no certainty mm. indeed, because the, the society is so uh, destroyed and, and uh, in a multifaceted way um, uh, unable to assess what really happens. Yeah. Uh, but we should give them a chance. Give them a chance and hope dies last, right? Andrews, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Michael, thank you as well. Uh, plenty more to talk about, but at this point, we'll have to wrap it up. Uh, great to have you uh, with us. Uh, thank you so much for watching the CPP Group uh, talk here in the European Parliament. Uh, and uh, keep an eye on at EPP Group and eppgroup.eu for any uh, further information on these developments. And uh, my name is Chris Burns, and see you next time.